The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You don't look good. Do you ever consider what it's all about? What what's all about? Why we're here, why we exist, what really is the nature of our being. I know, I'm asking questions that don't have answers. I never do that. London. It is Thursday, November 15, 2007. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where you can call in on 519-661-3600 to join us, where later in the show we'll be asking, so what's new on TV? What have you been watching lately? How's the new TV season going for you? Are you worried about the upcoming writer's strike? And take a look at a couple of the earlier TV reviews and see how they pan out against what's actually been going on out there. Another topic we're going to touch upon today, too much freedom or is it anarchy? talk about those two different issues. But first in the show, I want to talk about something most people don't like to talk about and very rarely do in in most common, you know, discussions in in public at least, but it's about philosophy basically. And I'm going to basically look at some questions about philosophy, who needs it, who hates it, and who cares? Are, are a lot of you like uh, Claudia from the from the series Relic Hunter, who never does that, never never examines the deeper issues of uh, of life and the meaning of life, or of you know just basically how the real world works? I had intended to do my third uh, reorientation review on the nature of uh, left and right, uh, which I've already done twice on the show. And uh, it basically explains, you know, why I feel that I'm legitimately saying at the beginning of each of the shows when I say not right wing, just right. And if those of you who are regular listeners, you know I've gone through that list before, sort of starting with Plato on the left and Aristotle on the right. I don't want to go through that list again yet today, but I will be leading up to it and I will be covering it again. I thought uh, that first we should examine the larger picture um, because, you know, I have time to do this now. We can do this over a bit of time. Certainly not going to cover it all today. But, uh, you know, I, I had no interest personally in philosophy till I was, gee, well into my late 20s, early 30s. It was, there were a lot of reasons I wasn't interested in it. And, and since becoming interested in it, uh, I now ask myself, why wasn't I always interested in it? But uh, there's a bit of a story behind that, and I thought I'd... Uh, sort of get in on that uh, just from the beginning. First of all, you know, the word philosophy, for those who aren't certain, you know, it's derived from the Greek word philos, which means love, and sophia, which means wisdom. So, of course, it means the love of wisdom. Philosophy is basically the subject which discusses the foundation of all the special sciences and interprets their mutual implications and sets limits to their theoretical extension. Now, I bet you most of you don't think about philosophy that way, that it's actually related to the real world and to science and how we look at, you know, the nature of, of nature itself. Um, 
Greek philosophy had its beginnings not in Athens, as a lot of people believe, but with the Ionians on the coast of Asia Minor, and it was further developed in Magna Graecia before it attained its full fruition in Athens. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's always amazed me is why, why, why do people avoid philosophy? What is, what is it about philosophy that, uh, you know, maybe they don't want to discuss, maybe it causes too many differences? I actually had one poor soul uh, sitting in my office one day, actually arguing seriously that reality was all in his mind and that there really is no um, objective reality as such. And, you know, I've met a lot of people who I think think that way, but this is one of the few who actually sat there right in front of me and was bragging about the fact. And i got to tell you, he looked it. You know, when I said one poor soul, I, I dearly meant it. This guy looked confused and directionless, and uh, I think he was kind of hoping that I might have some answers for him, but anything I would have had to say, uh, you know, would have been meaningless given the way he was thinking. He looked more uh, in need of counseling, really, than philosophical advice, though, you know, if I think back, in retrospect, maybe some philosophical direction would have been the appropriate remedy, had he been, you know, emotionally prepared to accept it. You can't just go up to a guy and say, uh, a total stranger, and say, hey, the premise of all your thinking and, and your reasoning is totally false. Okay, let's, let's start with that. That's a tough one, especially when they're not in an emotional state to accept it. But, uh, I think what he was clearly missing was a, was a, a foundation in philosophy. You know, but, you know, people resist philosophy. I think there's also a belief that uh, philosophy is for losers. Ever think about that? When do you ever hear the word philosophy most expressed in the media? Think about it for a second, you know. I, I think about it and I go, well, it's whenever a sports figure or a political figure loses a game or an election, suddenly they get really, quote, philosophical about it, don't they? Uh, they, they explain their loss in terms of philosophy. Often the only time I hear people use the word philosophical is in the face of, uh, of a great loss or of pain or of death. And rarely, uh, you know, there I have to admit there's the odd feature once in a while on someone who's successful and offers his or her philosophy of success. But usually when I look at such references, it's not really a philosophy that they're often talking about, but some kind of strategy or of finance or of personal interactions with others that may be based on some philosophy, but rarely explicitly expressed as that philosophy. And of course, there's the greater issue when we see a lot of people who do espouse, quote, philosophies, that there are evil philosophies in the world. And they probably outnumber the good ones. And I think that makes a lot of people unaware of the good ones and probably is something that encourages them to avoid philosophy altogether. Interesting, when we go back into the history of philosophy, basically, you know, it's a triad of opinion that all began back around, you know, 400, 300 BC with uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who amazingly are the defining points. Um, all the basics of philosophy were essentially laid out at that time, although we've gotten more sophisticated today and understand a lot more of, of the sciences that they didn't know at the time. And uh, what's really interesting is that they all lived around the same time. Um, Socrates and Plato lived into their 70s, Aristotle into his 60s. Socrates, of course, was the oldest. He lived from 469 to 399 BC. And he was a guy who first formulated the rules of disputation or dialectic. His chief interest lay in moral questions and in the attempt to elicit definitions 
of the virtues and of the virtuous man um, that, of course, led to his famous theory, uh, th theory of ideas, which was more promulgated by Plato. Um, you've heard of the Socratic method. It's basically asking questions, you know, talking about asking questions. Um, actually, you know, my understanding is that Socrates never really ever wrote anything or recorded it himself. All the accounts of him came through uh, Plato and Aristotle, who actually did the recording. And Plato, of course, lived from 428 to 328 BC, and he was the foremost pupil of Socrates. And, um, but he regarded the fundamental nature of reality uh, as, uh, as, as an ideal. Like, he, he saw the real world as a realm of timeless, immutable essences, or what he called ideas. And they always spell that with a capital I when they say ideas, when they refer to uh, Plato. The experienced world consists of rude copies of these ideas formed by shaping matter in their likeness. And to every class of things, there is a corresponding idea. And, uh, you know, Plato believed that the ideas and matter had always existed. And, of course, at this point, he is what they call a metaphysical dualist. And he believed that a deity stamped matter with their form. So basically, he believed that uh, reality was sort of in the mind, and it sort of conformed to what the mind could see. Um, he thought, you know, he said the world would have a beginning and an end, but this fact does not affect the ideas, with a capital I again. And in, in his thinking, the crowning idea is the idea of the good. And uh, in attempting to characterize it, Plato was led into an inquiry for the attributes of the just man and of the just society, which we often heard Pierre Trudeau referring to. And trust me, Pierre Trudeau was a Platonist. Uh, the theme of this, uh, of his, you know, treatise, treatise work was the Republic which um, I think was actually misnamed. I have to check that, but most people still refer to it the rep to the Republic, but I saw a reference that it, the actual title was supposed to be translated into the ideal state, but uh, I have to check into that. I don't have that with me right now. Now, of course, then there was Aristotle, and he was uh, from Macedonia, 384 to 322 B.C., and he came in early life to Athens and became a pupil of Plato. So you got Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all in succession. And uh, he was the great organizer and systemizer of the sciences and made contributions to all of them. Um, he created, believe it or not, the science of logic, of biology, of meteorology, of oceanography, and even of politics. Um, as a philosopher, he changed the whole idea of the sharp platonic dualism of matter and ideas into imminent dualism of matter and form. In other words, he, he figured matter always existed, it just changed its form, and that was the real dualism that we were looking at. And uh, he believed that ideas are the forms of things, but they exist not outside of things, as in platonic theory, but in, in, as inner urges or forces, literally the ends or purposes of things. Uh, to Aristotle, God was the supreme form, ultimate purpose, and the only form that is not itself matter for a higher form. And he believed God is actually interchangeable with good, for the good is, quote, that at which all things aim. And, uh, you know, the good life consists, according to Aristotle, of doing nothing overmuch, but rather to the appropriate degree, which was referred to as a theory of the golden mean. And... Um, so basically, you could see a, a difference between Aristotle and Plato. Aristotle believed that reality existed independent of the mind. Plato did not. Now we move ahead uh, oh, a couple thousand years. Um, there's all sorts of philosophers that have existed since those first three. 
they've all been variants of those first three or just different mixes. And of course, uh, that's basically how new ideas are created. But I would have to say that the most uh, uh, impacting philosopher of the modern era has to be Ayn Rand, who uh, really didn't set out to be a philosopher. What's really amazing, and it was brought to my attention yesterday, is that she didn't even become active or start writing essays about philosophy and politics until she was in her 60s. And she did all of this, you know, this whole reputation she got was really from age 60 to 80, 80 80-something, because before that she was... uh, uh, working on newspapers, she was. She had written books. She had her, her movie, uh, The Fountainhead, uh, was produced by Hollywood, and uh, so she did have a sort of reputation. She immigrated from, from the Soviet or from Russia, actually, but uh, she uh, created a philosophy that she called objectivism, and her she would be considered an Aristotelian philosopher because you know the whole point is that she believed that reality and reason were the were the things by which we could determine. What, what, what are the proper choices to make? And she really got into a branch of philosophy, which is where her real expertise came out. And that branch of philosophy, I think, we'd call epistemology. And it's really the knowledge of knowledge. How do you know that what you know is the right thing to know? How do you know you're not making mistakes in your logic? How do you know you're not making mistakes? And there's actually a science to this. And, uh, you know, Rand wrote this uh, very interestingly, why... You know, you even had to go into this area. And she talked about how philosophy is sort of like the programmer of your mind. It's almost the software to the hardware of the computer. And she once wrote, and I quote, You've probably heard the computer operator's eloquent term, GIGO, G-I-G-O, which means garbage in, garbage out. The same formula applies to the relationship between a man's thinking and his emotions. And she says, you know, your subconscious is like a computer. And it's more complex a computer than any people could build, and its main function is to integrate all of your ideas and your knowledge. And so who programs it? It's, it's your conscious mind. And she says, if you default, you won't reach any firm convictions. Your subconscious will be programmed by chance. And you will deliver yourself into the power of ideas that you will not know that you've accepted. They will be other people's ideas. But one way or the other, your computer gives you these printouts daily and hourly in the form of what we call emotions, which are lightning-like estimates of the things around you calculated according to your values. And that's why people react so differently. You could have two different people with different values acting entirely different to the same physical thing they might be seeing or the same idea. One might hate it, the other one might love it. You you can just see it. But if you programmed your computer by conscious thinking, you do know the nature of your values and emotions. And, of course, if you didn't, you don't, she says. Now, I think uh, computers make a great analogy uh, to the workings of the mind, and for good reason. Because although they are uh, artificially constructed, they still have to obey the laws of nature, and their and their construction has to conform to that nature. You know, all the whole digital world is very much uh, a natural world in the sense that it doesn't exist in nature, but it's natural in the sense that it follows the rules of nature. It has to, and the rules of logic apply to inanimate objects and forces like energy as well as to people. Logic is not an invention; it's a discovery. And since uh, people too are part of nature, the similarities may be more literal than we might expect. I've often thought of, uh, when I first saw how computers worked, I'd think of a hard drive as being a person's memory, 
And then the random access memory, RAM that they call, I I call that your consciousness. That's the part that you actually see on the screen that's live. Not all the data is there all the time. So that would be the conscious part of the computer, whereas the memory would have to be recalled. Um, Many of the ideas we encounter and absorb into our subconscious might be considered, say, uh, viruses or spam if if you were talking about a computer. And most of them are harmless, all sorts of trivia and, and odds and ends of ideas that we think, but some are deadly. And we often accept them thinking they're perfectly sweet sugar and, and the nicest idea. And they can be deadly, especially when they affect what we might call our operating system, our system of epistemology, how the mind actually works and how it, how it arrives at its conclusions. So you could almost ask, you know, like, does your mind run on Windows XP and crash regularly? Because if it does, you've probably got a virus that's affecting your way of thinking and prevents you from running the program necessary to solve the problem. could be just logic. Maybe some necessary data files are missing, which we would call evidence. Or maybe the wrong data files are being accessed. You know, you're back to garbage in, garbage out. But uh, definitely, you know, there's a philosophy is at the root of all uh, the harmony in the world. It's at the root of all the conflict in the world. And it's very important to understand that it is largely the motivating force. That's certainly something I've discovered in 20 years of getting involved in public life and in in politics. Uh, You know, Rand also wrote that at the root of every significant philosophic theory, theory, there's a legitimate issue in a sense that there's a real need for a person's consciousness, uh, which some theories struggle to clarify while others struggle to obfuscate or corrupt or prevent people from discovering. So she says the battle of philosophers is really a battle for man's mind. And if you do not understand their theories, the the theories of other people, you will be vulnerable to the worst among them. Now, of course, Rand believed that modern-day philosophy has been basically abolished by two what she called fashionable schools of linguistic analysis and existentialism, which I'll mention briefly a little later on. But basically, she said that most people's biggest mistake when it comes to philosophy is is their tendency to accept consequences while ignoring the cause, to take like the end result of a long sequence of thought as a given and to regard it as self-evident while negating all the preconditions that led up to that. And she said examples can be seen all around us, of course, especially in politics. And... You know, she, she, she warned that, you know, if you want to know when something doesn't look right uh, uh, philosophically, watch for rationalization, because she says that's not a process of perceiving reality, but of attempting uh, to make reality fit one's emotions. And people who uh, rationalize don't judge the truth of a statement by its correspondence to reality. They judge reality by its correspondence to their feelings. And so she realized that after a while she could see that evil philosophies are basically systems of uh, rationalization. Now what's interesting is that uh, today's trend philosophically, and this has been the case for a while, I checked out my encyclopedia, it even said the same thing back in uh, 1950s, especially in North America, is towards pragmatism. And pragmatism really isn't a philosophy. And what I found amazing, even in my, in my encyclopedia, here's, here's what it said about pragmatism. It said pragmatism is a theory of knowledge that is anti-intellectual. That is to say, it is a general mental attitude that was part of a reaction against extreme intellectual speculation as to the theory of the possibility of knowledge and its nature. So it basically says pragmatism claims that all thoughts 
uh, sorry, all thought is purpose, and that there's no such thing as pure thought, you know, that there's always interest and purpose in thought, and that all knowing must be related to some aim. Now, that's sort of the philosophic part of it. But, um, of course, most people see pragmatism as just practicality. Oh, I'm just going to be practical, although that doesn't determine what you would practically do on a philosophic level. Uh, what a a socialist might regard as a practical way of solving the housing problem would be totally different from what a capitalist would regard as a practical way of solving a housing problem. And uh, but basically, pragmatism rejects all sorts of fixed standards and and just basically absorbs the prevailing standards that are in society. And um, so basically, there's no real objective standard to to practicality or to pragmatism because it can be anything. Uh, linguistic analysis, which is one of the things Rand hated, basically uh, argues that words are really arbitrary. You know, just a social product immune from any really principles or standards and, and don't really have a, an objective purpose. And uh, it basically declares that the ultimate reality is just words. Almost sounds like Plato, doesn't it? And that words don't have any specific reference, but mean whatever people want them to mean. And so, you know, it's kind of opposed to a hierarchical structure of concepts. And then there's, of course, existentialism, which is the last one on my philosophy lesson this morning. Um, I have a wonderful set of philosophy uh, encyclopedias at the office, and it was very interesting what it had to say about existentialism. It said, quote, existentialism is not easily definable. Its protagonists have traced it back to Pascal, to St. Augustine, and even to Socrates. That two writers both claim to be existentialists does not seem to entail their agreement on any one cardinal point. Consequently, to define existentialism by means of a set of philosophical formulas could be very misleading. Any formula sufficiently broad to embrace all the various forms of existentialism would necessarily be so general and so vague as to be vacuous. In other words, it's almost meaningless. Um, you know, basically existentialists believe that reality always evades our ability to conceptualize it. Like it's, oh, we can never possibly con conceive of reality when, when in fact we can. We can't perceive it all at once, but we can understand it and conceptualize it. Um, my Funk and Wagnalls just looked at uh, existentialism and just said it's a philosophy that stresses the active role of the will rather than of reason confronting problems posed by a hostile universe. And my Webster's unabridged, which is really, I think, the one that says it all about existentialism. It says it's a literary philosophic cult of nihilism and pessimism popularized in France after World War II, chiefly by Jean-Paul Sartre. It holds that each man exists as an individual in a purposeless universe, and that he must oppose his hostile environment through the exercise of his free will. I don't know how they're going to do that without, you know, using reason or any other uh, senses to perceive reality. But boy, is that depressing or what? That's not a philosophy I'd want to have. So uh, here's uh, comic Al Ray talking about what it's like to be an existentialist. And when we come back, we'll be talking about freedom. I don't really care where I live, frankly, because uh, I'm an existentialist. <laughs> to me, it's, it's hard for me to even reconcile the fact that I have a wife. <laughs> And a kid, you know, because as an existentialist of 15, 
I want to do what all existentialists of 15 want to do with their life. End it. <laughs> and, you know, but I didn't. I, I persevered. But I had a friend that did it. He, he had a wife and a kid, and he, he actually committed suicide. But he had to make it look like a robbery homicide <laughs> in order to collect the insurance money. So what he did is he, he rigged up a shotgun, you know, and put it against the door jam and made sure the trajectory matched that of a, you know, home invasion. And messed up the apartment, you know, left a note, you know, ostensibly from the robber. Which read, I, I killed him because life is meaningless. <laughs> Just right, I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can call in at 519-661-3600, and I or Timothy will pick up the phone to put you through to us if you'd like to have a comment in there. We'll be talking about the TV shows and the current season a little later. But first, I want to ask the question, uh, is it possible to have too much freedom in a society? Uh, you know, I heard an announcer on another radio station always keep saying total freedom is total anarchy, you know, and as though that were some sort of self-evident truth that we were all supposed to accept. And uh, again, it comes down to definitions, doesn't it? If freedom is the same as anarchy, uh, then why do we have both words? What are the, what are the two words for? W why are there two words? Uh, do you not get a different impression if somebody were to come up to you and say, uh, hey, there's anarchy in the streets versus uh, there's freedom in the streets. It certainly has a different ring to me. Anarchy sounds uh, chaotic, and freedom in the streets sounds like a, a release of oppression or the end of a war or something like that. And that, to me, doesn't denote anything negative to me. And, of course, this, again, is a branch of philosophy, specifically epistemology, which is largely about definitions. And, uh, you know, philosophy in general, you know, you can look at all aspects of it, political terms, definition, the context, about language versus semantics, about the varying systems of socialism, capitalism, communism, fascism, which I've discussed before and will do again, but not today, and about, of course, the distinctions between democracy and majority rule, which is something I'm planning to do a little in detail on some of the upcoming uh, Just Right shows in the future. And, of course, it's about the nature of government and of individual rights. 
Now, most people might think of anarchy or freedom, uh, I'm not sure if they think of them as a system, but but they're both uh, socio-economic political conditions, really. They're not systems, per se. Um, it, it's interesting. I'll try to compare the two. But I'm going to start with anarchy first, because so many people, and, and you might think a lot of this, I've been called an anarchist in the past, and, and maybe there's some good reason for that, because there's some confusion on that level, that uh, there are there is some definite confusion about this term, what it means historically, what it means in practice, what it actually uh, you know, how it's actually employed. But uh, I have this old out-of-print uh, dictionary of uh, sort of misinformation that came out uh, by, a, by a guy named Tom Burnham back in the mid-'70s. I don't think you can get it anymore. But it's called a Dictionary of Misinformation, and in it, under the word anarchism, it, uh, it read the following... Quote, entirely in contrast to the popular conception, anarchy is probably the most idealistic and peaceful of political theories. As a philosophy, it assumes a system in which the individual is free and living in peace. It looks forward to a time when human beings can coexist within a framework of voluntary associations. Anarchy rejects any theory involving control of one class of individuals by another, end quote. Now, in a lot of ways... I guess that might describe me a little bit. I, I guess emotionally it might, but, but there's a very key phrase in there, and it says, as a philosophy, it, quote, assumes a system. Well, you can't assume a system. Anarchy isn't any system, and if it assumes a system, what's the system? And who decides what the system is? So I, I had to go to a, a better definition source, and again, I go to my Encyclopedia of Philosophy for things like this, which is just an amazing encyclopedia, in fact, because uh, I'm only reading you bits and pieces of it. When they give you a definition, they've got about between four and twelve pages of Bible-thin paper just giving you the whole history of these things, and it's amazing what you can learn just from studying definitions. Often you can learn more about a concept or, or you know, any word and what's involved with it just by learning the definition than, than anything you could do afterwards. But uh, nevertheless, it looks at anarchism as a social philosophy that rejects authoritarian government and maintains that voluntary institutions are best suited to express man's natural social tendencies. Historically, the word anarchist... Uh, derives from the Greek anarchos, which is two words, A-N-A-R-C-H-O-S, meaning no government, and it appears first to have been used pejoratively to indicate one who denies all law and who wishes to promote chaos. It was used in this sense against the levelers during the English Civil War and, and during the French Revolution by most, most uh, parties in criticizing those who stood to the left of them on the uh, political spectrum. The first use of, use of the word as a positive description, I suppose, w was apparently Pierre-Joseph Proudhon when in his uh, book, What is Property, published in Paris, 1840, he described himself as an anarchist because he believed that political organization based on authority should be replaced by social and economic organization based on voluntary contractual agreement. Now, you know, I could say that I believe in that, too. I believe in voluntary contractual agreement. But again, it misses the system. What if somebody doesn't want to go along with the contract? What type of agency do you have to enforce it? And this is where anarchism just falls apart. And why there are different uh, uses of it. And, uh, you know, in one sense, uh, anarchy can almost mean anything. And... Um, 
the two uses of the word have survived together and have caused confusion in discussing anarchism, which to some has appeared as a doctrine of destruction and to others as a benevolent doctrine based on faith in the, in the innate goodness of man, so to speak. And uh, there's been further confusion. Some people associate anarchism with nihilism and with terrorism, when in fact anarchism, uh, which is based on faith, interestingly enough, in natural law and justice, stands at the opposite pole to nihilism, which denies all moral laws. And of course, what they're arguing is that it's, you know, just because you're anarchical and you're violent doesn't mean that it's, it's special to that, because there's all sorts of terrorists who are not anarchists and are violent for other sorts of movements. So you can't say that this one movement is particularly prone to violence uh, per se, although in a condition of anarchism, you have to expect more violence in the sense of no government anarchism. Um, Anarchism aims at the most, at the utmost possible freedom compatible with social life in the belief that voluntary cooperation by responsible individuals is not merely more just and equitable, but is also in the long run more harmonious and ordered than authoritarian government. And, you know, that's true as long as people are getting along and as long as everyone's agreeing. It's when you have disagreements or people who are just not well who uh, we have to deal with at some point um, in society. Anarchist philosophy has taken many forms, none of which can be defined as orthodoxy. And basically, its exponents have deliberately cultivated the idea that it's an open and mutable doctrine. Like, come on in, anybody can be an anarchist. And that's part of the problem with the movement, and it's certainly part of the problem with uh, the libertarian movement, which is, has a large degree of anarchism within its membership and, and, and philosophy. And which is why I'm not really, and never have been, a strict libertarian in the sense uh, although I've used the word sometimes. But uh, all of its variants of anarchism sort of combine a criticism of existing government societies, a future of some libertarian society that might replace them, and a projected way of attaining that society you know, by some unusual way, some means outside normal practice. Anarchism in general rejects the state. It denies the value of democratic procedures because they're based on majority rule and on the delegation of responsibility that the individual should retain. Now, you see, I, on, in my way of thinking, I think that's almost backwards. Majority rule, yeah, I'm a, I, I don't believe in strict majority rule, but I do believe in democratic principles. I'm just not that insistent it has to be 51% and uh, that everyone has to be in on it because you're going to get the same results anyway in a general, uh, in a proper type of an election. But basically, it criticizes utopian philosophies because they aim at static, ideal type of societies. And anarchism inclines toward internationalism and federalism. And while the views of anarchists on questions of economic organization vary greatly, it may be said that all of them reject what William Godwin called accumulated property, which is very much opposed to uh, capitalism in a sense. And that's why anarchists aren't really capitalists. Um, you know, attempts have been made by anarchist apologists to trace the origins of their point of view in primitive, to no, uh, in primitive non-governmental societies, and I've seen that happen right here at the University of Western Ontario, uh, where certain anarchists were trying to prove, uh, you know, uh, tribal anarchy, a uh, wonderful way for people to live. Well, anarchy works at a very primitive level, but it, it cannot work at a sophisticated level where you require contracts to be signed through sometimes years and years of time that have to be enforced by governments. However, the first forms of anarchism as a developed philosophy appeared at the beginning of the modern era, and um, 
When the medieval order had uh, disintegrated, basically, the Reformation had reached its uh, sectarian phase, and the rudimentary forms of modern political and economic organization had basically begun to, hear, uh, to appear. So in other words, the emergence of the modern state and of capitalism was also paralleled by the emergence of anarchy, in a sense, the, which in its various forms has opposed both of those things very fundamentally. Um, you know, I, some of the more famous anarchists I, I saw in the encyclopedia were Proudhon, Winstanley, Godwin, and various uh, forms of anarchism. Believe it or not, there's individualist anarchism, mutualism, collectivism, anarchist communism, anarcho-syndicalism, and pacifist anarchism. So you can imagine putting all these people into one group together, and they certainly aren't of one mind. Rand always said that anarchy as a political concept, and that's very important to note, as a political concept, as a social concept, like who cares, is a naive floating abstraction. A society without an organized government would be at the very mercy of the first criminal who came along and who would, who would precipitate it into the chaos of gang warfare. Which basically, she says, and even a society whose every member were fully rational and faultlessly moral could not function in a state of anarchy. It's the need of objective laws and of an arbiter for honest disagreements among men that necessitates the establishment of a government. Not all disagreements are about one person being dishonest and the other guy being dishonest. They might be two honest people who have a legitimate disagreement. Now, that's it for basically uh, anarchy. Freedom is a lot easier to handle in terms of... Uh, of, of defining it, because it's a very narrowly defined thing, although some people might disagree. And freedom, of course, is not a system, it's a condition, as I said, that arises when the proper philosophical principles are in play, uh, both in the hearts and minds of individuals and in the institutions that govern them. I think freedom is very much a social concept, and it's very much ingrained in the very essence of a people. But uh, I think one of the key points to focus on, and it's this one I found again in the Philosophy Encyclopedia, and it, is, it, it basically said, and it was, this was under the heading Absence of Constraint or Coercion, and, and it basically says, and I quote, it is best to start from a conception of freedom that has been central in the tradition of European individualism and liberalism. According to this conception, freedom refers primarily to a condition, as I've said, characterized by the absence of coercion or constraint imposed by another person. A man is said to be free to the extent that he can choose his own goals or course of conduct, can choose between alternatives available to him, is not compelled to act as he would himself not choose to act, or prevented from acting as he would otherwise choose to act by will of another man or the state or of any authority. Freedom in the sense of not being coerced or constrained by another is sometimes called negative freedom, what they call freedom from. It refers to an area of conduct within which each man chooses his own course and is protected from compulsion or restraint. And basically I have to say that, uh, you, know, oh, you know, some writers take the view that the absence of coercion is the sufficient and necessary condition for defining uh, freedom, and I certainly believe that in, in the political sense, certainly not in the broader total sense of what you could say about freedom, but politically that's basically it. Those are the basic uh, definitions of freedom. So here I am, I, I believe in freedom, and, and I'm described in this encyclopedia of philosophy basically as an individualist and a liberal. And uh, that is actually, if you go back in history, it's a small L liberal, not a capital L liberal. I think that's pretty accurate. Now, of course, other people want to widen the concept of freedom. 
in one or both of two ways. They kind of argue that natural conditions, and not only the will of the power of other people can impose obstructions and restraints on people to choose between alternatives, and therefore, you know, ipso facto, they're not free uh, just because of that situation. And so uh, that, of course, is the left arguing. They support positive freedom, basically, while the right would support the negative freedom. And the positive freedom, of course, negates the negative freedom because in order to, to implement that, you have to violate that right against other people and, and, and use coercion against them, if you, especially if you want money from them. That's what taxes are, especially when it's just to transfer from one person to another. So anyways, that's it for our philosophy lesson today. And, and basically, as an illustration of... Uh, the con of this conflict conflict in action that I just talked about. Uh, uh, we've got a clip coming up here now that uh, might not be the best of shape because it's kind of old. Maybe I got it off an old beta tape, but it was recorded in 1999 on CBC television, and it features Avi Lewis in conversation with uh, then Freedom Party leader Lloyd Walker and a panel of representatives from some other uh, Ontario political parties. And uh, just an interesting way of ending up the uh, whole conversation. And we come back after that, we'll be talking about what's on TV. The old thing of, you know, capitalism is man exploiting his fellow man and communism is just the other way around. Not only men, actually, but they also yeah. exploit a lot of women. No, <laughs> but it's just and the other way around. So you mean, when you have a government yeah. system yeah. that insists that the government runs things, you can be sure that somebody's going to be exploited. I'll guarantee that. When you okay, make okay, everybody... That's that's okay, I actually want to turn things back to, to, to the libertarian side of the equation because that is the critique of, of, of communism, that it, there's sort of a, a, a state control. That's the stereotype. The, the, the problem that people have with libertarianism is in this absolute freedom, in this radical freedom, what responsibility do you have to other people? Okay, there is... First off, there's no such thing as radical freedom. Mm -hmm. I think radical freedom would be being allowed to go around throwing bombs and blowing up babies, and I don't come out okay, so there are the limit. There are the limits. Absolutely. The freedom is, is a self-limiting concept. It's like I'm free to swing my arm, but I have to stop at Sam's nose. There's no question there. I can't do that. I can't violate the rights of another person. So, so freedom becomes self-limiting. It's like so it's a party, belief in human nature. Then. Freedom Party is stated from the outset. The purpose of government is to protect our freedom of choice, not to restrict it. And it's there to allow us to be free, to make our own choices, to accept responsibility for them, but it is there to protect us from other people violating our rights. So that's it, it's a negative definition. No, but what kind of freedom of going to America this time but always I go with you wherever you go understand you go now Maria no no I stay with you Roberto no Maria I, I... what I do now I do alone I couldn't do it if you were here if you go then I go too don't you see how it is whichever one there is, is no no we can go if you're bored no no I'd like to stay and see what happens you won't be disappointed. The ending's classic. <laughs> Not the film. I'm sensing a rising emotional undercurrent in the room. I'm curious to see if it culminates in some kind of group response. They don't have movies where you come from, do they? Well, we had something similar a few hundred years ago, but they lost their appeal when people discovered their real lives were more interesting. Oh, still. It's nice to take a break from real life every now and then, don't you think? 
I suppose it is. Remember last night. Now you understand. Now you're going. And you're going well and fast and far and go to America. Ah, something am I. Stand up now and go and we both go. Stand up, Maria. Remember, you're me too. It's remarkable, Doctor. Even fictional characters seem to elicit human compassion. My shipmates have calmly faced any number of dangers, and yet a simple movie can bring tears to their eyes. Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM. Where it looks like this year's TV season, according to a headline in the London Free Press, is lacking breakout hit TV shows. Uh, Michael Reschaffen on October 17th seems to think that this just isn't the season to make it. I was looking at some other reviews of some of the TV shows that are out this season, and I think you get a little bit different different views depending on who you read and who you uh, you know look at look in terms of uh, trying to find out what you want to watch on TV. Um, I don't watch TV in the normal way. I generally watch all of my TV on DVDs that I burn from just uh, taping them off of various stations. Burn them on DVDs. I've got complete seasons of shows, folks, that I haven't even watched yet. But what I do do is I try to go to the to the newspapers and news sources that when I see new shows coming out because generally I do most of my TV watching uh, in the summertime, not so much during the so-called seasons, you know, the television seasons, just because of, the, of my lifestyle. And, uh, of course, I, I collect a lot of these shows, so a lot of them I, w- I won't see for a while. And I, so I just went through some of the papers and uh, looked at some of the reviews to see what I might try this year. And I have tried some of them. I've sampled some. I've been taping some that uh, I haven't even looked at yet. In fact, right now, I think my computer is at home rendering an episode of Bionic Woman. <laughs> and I haven't watched an episode yet, but I keep hearing it's a good show, so I'm going to give it a chance. How about you, Ira? You been noticing anything uh, interesting on the airwaves this year or you've just been too busy for television no i've been pretty darn busy for television i know that in radio you gotta stick stick with the news and everything but i get a few chance to sit down and really watch some new cartoons and some new shows and so forth what have you seen new that that has interested you or well it can can be about anything i'm not you know well i know it's not new but 24 is an actually unique totally new experience for me i mean the fact that someone thought up the thought of the idea of taking an hour and putting it on and it goes around the clock that's actually pretty interesting to me i thought it would be showing a camera someone sleeping (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's a great formula. I, I believe it or not, I've never seen an episode of Twenty Four yet. Oh, I thought it was it's, it's one of the many. I have. I've got the first season of Sopranos on DVD, and I haven't watched that yet either. You know, and a lot of people tell me that's a good show to watch. I the thing the problem I have though is that I just cannot seem to uh, start a show and not see the very first episode or the. Oh, or the thank episodes. you. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way, and that's one of the reasons I started saving them on DVD. So many of today's shows depend entirely upon the serial approach. If you're watching Heroes or you're watching even Bionic Woman and then you know to be continued, to be continued. Mm-hmm. They're almost following the old uh, comic book exactly, um, exactly. formula that used to have when we were kids and stuff. Always every story was always continued. 
But I'm a very strong supporter of the writers. I uh, I think I would if I if I had the chance I'd go out there and pick it with them, stand right there on the lines and say they need more rights, they need more money, they need all this stuff. Well, that's an interesting. You know, I was actually planning to make that the subject of today's show, and I collected so much stuff on it, and a lot of the information of that hasn't really come out yet. There's just starting to leak out. The other side is starting to uh, mm-hmm. make its point of view heard because it's a tough issue to look at just on the surface, but it's certainly going to affect a lot of the TV seasons. Um, I was looking at, uh, in fact, one of the uh, the article I just referred to, they were saying that some of the shows they think that are already uh, in trouble are um, carpoolers, uh, cavemen, I don't know if you've seen any of them. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I actually watched the first uh, episode of each of them, and they were, eh, so-so. Mm-hmm. I thought they might make a go of it, but it kind of uh, just half-hour sitcoms. You know, and cavemen, there's literally these guys <laughs> looking like cavemen, right? Yeah. But playing it kind of straight. Yeah, which which kind of I'm going okay. Is that going to work? I I don't know if a if a thing like that can work. Well, I think that we have a problem with today's entertainment and the fact that it, it's they don't go with an old system. We we've lost a lot of our attention span. We've lost a lot of our patience. Uh, a classic shows like The Waltons, for example. I remember I was a little kid. My me and my mom would sit down and we would watch it together. And I remember hearing in an interview from the man that plays John Boy. It says that they were actually in trouble in their very first few episodes that not a lot of people were watching them. But he also mentioned that those were during the days when uh, when a network would let them have the entire season to see how it gauges out, to see how people get used to it. Uh-huh. And these days, if a show doesn't get, get hit, make the ratings in like the first two episodes, it's canned. That's exactly a major issue uh, with the whole rating system. I, I've complained about that on this show. Remember, I remember I once uh, predicted Drive would be the next Lost mm-hmm. on this show. Four days later, canceled. Mm-hmm. And um, again, I still think that show would have been as good as Lost. But it's all about ratings, and it depends on where they actually schedule those shows. If you see a show scheduled on a Friday night. You can almost begin by writing that show off. It's just on the precipice. It's yeah. ready to go. And it's even worse when they do some shows. I've seen some shows debut on Friday and have their second episode on Sunday. Now, who's going to follow that? Exactly. You know, and then, and then again, you miss the first one, and uh, you really can't follow the rest of the series, or you don't want to get into it, because if you miss the way a lot of, especially key characters, are, are properly introduced to each other on a show, you miss the whole, uh, the vi- you know, the uh, chemistry. Yeah. of what's supposed to be going on there. A lot of network heads are just impatient these days, and they want something that will just rock it out of the gates and finish the race first with about f- four lengths ahead of all the other shows, but they don't have the patience or time to really sit down and say, okay, let's look at this, and let's really well, baby it. That's, a, that's absolutely it. right. I think one of my favorite shows that got died that way was uh, called Firefly. I don't know if you ever saw that. Oh, yes, definitely. Ba- basically, uh, an outer space western. If somebody had told me an outer space western would be fun to watch, I'd say, no way. Mm-hmm. Watch this show. It was hooked on it, and of course, they had to cancel it. Well, of course, a lot. Uh, I think we're, we should be relieved to know also is that the viewers do have power. I mean, I have noticed twice where the viewers said that we want this show back, and the networks actually caved in and and gave it back and gave the show's new life. Uh, Jericho for one, and Family Guy for a second thing. A lot of people have been uh, watched old episodes, bought the DVDs, and the networks saw they made a mistake in canceling the show, and they brought it back. Great, and and that's exactly that's how, how actually um, Firefly the movie got made too, to finalize it. Listen, let's go to that next clip, and when we come back, uh, we'll just talk about a couple of the shows that were reviewed in the National Post. Maybe we can squeeze them in in the last few minutes, and we'll be back right after this.
Ira? Yes, we have a caller on line one. Oh, you have a caller. That's what you're trying to get my attention for. Okay, let's have the caller. <laughs> How you doing, Bob? Not too bad. That's good. Yeah, actually, um, you're right about the serial ones. Um, have you heard of, uh, there's a show my favorite now, it's called Dexter. I haven't seen, seen that. that. No, not yet. Oh, you might you might find that kind of interesting. He's uh, he's a serial killer that hunts serial killers. Was well, that what it's about? Yeah. Now is this a new show or is it in second? It's in its second season. Second season. Yeah, I think there's 13 episodes or 14 in the first season. You can get it on DVD. Excellent. Yeah, and uh, it's one of my favorites because it's dark, uh, and yet it follows a moral code. Oh, fascinating! There's a lot of shows that that follow that basic formula. And, um, you know, too bad I can't, I, we're not going to have definitely enough time to cover all the shows I wanted today. I think I might continue this next week. But uh, any other new shows you've seen there? Um, that and uh, I enjoy Heroes. Oh, Heroes is, is, is a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the way it's, it's laid out and, and everybody's sort of secretive and, you know, all underground. Yeah, and the, and the conspiracy um, it's it's I find it enjoyable. Yeah, it, it you know it's got a formula that works so well. If somebody had told me uh, just out of the blue, if you, if you if you were just to describe heroes to someone who'd never seen it, you know that these people can do anything, like jump around like Superman or go invisible, you'd probably write the show off, wouldn't you? J- just you know like yeah, is that going to be how can how can you make that interesting? You know. Yep, that's it. And I'd like to know how they pitched that. Yeah, and not only to make it interesting, but end up making it more interesting than most of the competition that's out there. Uh, that's a true um, accomplishment, I think, and and it's it really uses uh, a lot of fantasy to get a, uh, some real deep issues across. And I think uh, it's, it's it's a fun show to watch. It's like a roller coaster ride, and you're they always leave you wanting more at the end, don't they? Oh, that's it. That's it. That's why you just can't wait for the next week. Yeah, and I, I watched it on DVD, which gets expensive because I think there's only four episodes on a on a DVD. Right. But uh, yeah, you watch them all in a row, and it's really hard to like shut it off. You Excellent. Keep watching. Okay. Well, thanks yeah. for calling. And we'll. Uh, how about you, Ira? Got well, someone? Uh, else? We're going to have another caller oh, okay. coming in. If you give me a few minutes. Yeah. Can't give you a few minutes. <laughs> all right, caller, go ahead. Hello, caller. Well, I think we lost him on the air, but uh, I totally agree with uh, our last caller right there. We have a uh, we have some ab- absolutely excellent new shows, but as to reiterate what I said before, we need to give them a chance. I, I think so too. And uh, what's interesting is that uh, one of the things that the writer strike may may cause is that some of these shows that are a little bit on the edge, according to uh, the same article, says one of the reasons there hasn't been any cancellation notices posted thus far might have to do at that time with the possibility of a writer strike. So they didn't want to start canceling shows and not be able to replace them uh, with new shows if they weren't going to have any writers to do that. Interestingly, that's the same thing that happened back in the 1980s um, when uh, Star Trek The Next Generation got on the air. They were in the middle of a writer's strike, and that's why that first season was a little crappy. you say we have another uh, caller there? Yes, I do. Okay, let's get him in. Hey, Bob. Hi there. Yeah, I was, I was going to st- uh, stick with that comment of, we don't really need too many of the new shows, as long as we just, we just have all the Star Treks, we'll be good. <laughs> a lot of people might think that way. Star Trek is still one of the highest demographic uh, rating shows on television, especially among men between ages 18 and 55. Can you believe that? 
That's a huge demographic. It is, and it, it accounts for why you see reruns. And when I say Star Trek, I mean all, what, was there five series or four? Five. 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 Actually, no, well, there's six. Six? Because uh, uh, there was a cartoon version of the original well, series. Of course, of course. I'd forgotten completely about that. Ira's given me the signal out there. I think our time is just about running out. Is it, Ira, or... Uh, yes, it is. Well, We're just about coming up to the top of the hour. Okay, well, I guess that's it for today. We're going we're gonna to continue with this next week, though, because I didn't even get into half of the things I wanted to say about a lot of these TV shows. But thanks for calling, folks. And tune in again next week when we will continue, and we'll focus a little more on this season's shows. And uh, so next week, I don't like care. the board games. I like the game. And uh, make sure that you uh, join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right. Do right, act right, and think right. We'll see you then. Take care. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. We've all been a cartoon character, every one of us here tonight. I'm going to remind you when it happened. You went out, you partied, went to bed. Next morning, your friend called you early, too early, woke you up, you answered the phone. And you sounded just like Elmer Fudd. Hello. <laughs> and we never admit to the other person that we just woke up. We all lie. Oh, no, you didn't wake me up. I've been up for a long time. I, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I feel, uh, I feel great. Yeah, yeah. How, uh, how was your night, Al? My God, I got hammered. I am so... <laughs>